Delegates at the UN's COP28 climate summit in Dubai have launched yet another attack on the oil and gas sector, Canada's in particular, by agreeing to a climate pledge to transition away from oil and gas. Freedom Convoy organizers are set to appear in court today to attempt to dismiss a $290 million class action lawsuit. A whistleblower on corporate mismanagement in the federal government's Green Tech Fund delivered an explosive testimony before Parliament and accused Justin Trudeau's industry minister, Francois-Philippe Champagne, of lying. Hello Canada, it is Thursday, December 14th. This is the True North Daily Brief. I'm Andrew Lawton. And I'm Isaac Lamaru. We have got you covered with all the news you need to know. Let's discuss the top stories of the day and the True North exclusives you won't hear anywhere else. Delegates from nearly 200 countries at the COP28 Climate Summit in Dubai have agreed to a climate pledge to transition away from oil and gas. This agreement, reached after extended negotiations, signals a commitment to effectively phase out traditional energy, although it stops short of using that term. The deal, marked by its absence of the word phase-out, instead promotes a gradual shift away from oil, gas, and coal. The text calls for, quote, transitioning away from fossil fuels in a just, orderly, and equitable manner, accelerating action in this critical decade so as to achieve net zero by 2050 in keeping with the science. More than 100 nations advocated for strong language in the accord to eliminate oil, gas, and coal altogether, which account for about 80% of the world's energy. These nations faced significant resistance from OPEC, led by Saudi Arabia, which contended that global emission reductions are achievable without the categorical exclusion of particular fuels. The approach aims for net zero carbon dioxide emissions by 2050 with the goal of limiting the average global temperature increase to 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. Now, obviously, Alberta, which was at COP28, kind of representing Alberta's interests, has had some pretty harsh words about this pledge, hasn't it, Isaac? Yeah, that would be uh, an understatement, I'd say, Andrew. Even, uh, I mean, I was reading the uh, joint statement that... Uh, Premier Daniel Smith and uh, Minister Rebecca Schultz issued, and I, I was surprised that some of the language that was used, of course, they called Climate Minister Stephen Guibault a, quote, national embarrassment for actively trying to sabotage the interests of Albertans and all Canadians by releasing a series of incoherent and illegal policy pronouncements that Smith said the federal government has no legal authority to impose upon the provinces of Canada. It, it will be interesting uh, to me, uh, Andrew, it, to see whether Guibault keeps trying to force carbon neutrality down s some provinces and s specifically Alberta's throats pre-2050 and, and, and what Smith's reaction will be. Do you, do you think that other provinces are watching uh, Alberta's feud specifically with Guibault closely to determine how they themselves want to manage their own energy restrictions or, or management? Well, watching may be one way of putting it. I think that they're looking for Alberta to do the heavy lifting. Alberta's the province that has to stick its neck out, and we see other provinces follow suit. This has been true on the sovereignty issue. It's been true on the pushback against the federal carbon tax, this renewed pushback. 
and I think we'll probably see it continue. Now, as a Canadian who's not from Alberta, I think there's an argument that Canadians themselves stand to suffer from not developing the oil and gas sector. And I, I'm wondering if you think Canadians realize that, because it's always been a bit of a marketing play. The government views this so-called just transition as being inevitable when you've got provinces like Alberta, and I'll say to give credit where it's due, Saudi Arabia, acknowledging that, uh, yeah, we can achieve your stated objectives here without just decimating this industry. Yeah, that's just it, I suppose, is some people and or nations uh, have, in my opinion, short-sighted goals where they just want to reach a certain thing, like let's say, for example, carbon neutrality by 2030 without evaluating what costs will come with uh, achieving that. Whereas Smith, I think, takes a, a real holistic approach in that she says, okay, here's what we want to accomplish. What date can we accomplish it by without annihilating uh, all of our industries and our economy as a whole? Lawyers representing Tamara Leach and Chris Barber and other defendants will appear in court Thursday attempting to dismiss a class action lawsuit brought forth by Zexi Lee and several other residents of Ottawa. The defendants have filed an application to dismiss the $290 million class action lawsuit as a strategic lawsuit against public participation, meaning a lawsuit designed to silence the expression of peaceful protesters. The lawsuit was filed against Tamara Leach, Chris Barber, and other participants in the Freedom Convoy in February 2022, according to the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms. It was filed on behalf of Ottawa residents and businesses by Lee and Jeffrey Delaney, Happy Goat Coffee Company, and a local union. The lawsuit is seeking damages against peaceful protesters for allegedly causing a nuisance. Additionally, the lawsuit is seeking damages from citizens who donated to the Freedom Convoy. Andrew, is the lawsuit really necessary for phantom hawks, hot tubs, and bouncy castles? <laughs> well, when you put it like that, certainly not. Uh, look, I think there was a very clear-cut uh, example early on in the convoy of it being disruptive. You had a lot of exuberance. People were very excited. They were honking their horns. The plaintiffs in this suit went to court. They got an injunction, and that injunction said the horn honking has to stop. And it did. That was, the, I think, the most important part of this. So this idea that there was this really prolonged nuisance beyond the general level of disruption that you'd get in a protest, which is protected by law, has not actually been made all that clear. And the thing that's most interesting here is that the people they're going after, Tamara Leach is a notable example of this, didn't even have trucks. So what, I mean, she wasn't honking. She didn't have exhaust fumes coming from her truck because she didn't even have a truck there. And, and the fact that they're trying to go after donors as well, it just seems vindictive and not connected to what they claim is the reason for this lawsuit. And Andrew, I was curious to get your opinion. What effect do you think uh, the current protests that are disruptive going on, not only across the country, but across the world, what kind of effect do those have on this lawsuit, given that those are uh, undisrupted from a government or a policing standpoint, that is? Well, no one's talking about the Emergencies Act when it comes to uh, virulently anti-Semitic protests. No one's talking about the Emergencies Act when you talk about uh, some of the pro-Israel demonstrations. And again, protests are by design meant to be disruptive. They're meant to make an impact. Now, uh, there are different types of protests. Some of them will get a permit and stand in a little public square and wave their signs for an hour and that's it. Others will try to block roads and, and whatnot. But we have protections for freedom of expression, which include 
includes especially the right to protest. And I, I think the fact that we see all of these other protests that are not met with the same uh, response that the Freedom Convoy is really explains why the government had such a heavy-handed approach in this case. A whistleblower on corporate mismanagement in the federal government's Green Tech Fund delivered explosive testimony before a parliamentary committee claiming that Innovation Minister Francois-Philippe Champagne lied to the Ethics Committee. Israr Ahmed, a former employee at Sustainable Development Technology in Canada, claimed that Minister Champagne misled the Ethics Committee by claiming he only learned of the findings from a private sector report uh, concluding that SDTC had significant problems, when, according to Mr. Ahmad, these issues were put to Champagne in the fall in a briefing. He also claimed Ahmad did that Champagne misrepresented details about a human resources investigation being briefed about the findings of the report. An SDTC whistleblower told True North that the fund's management frequently fires disgruntled employees and imposes restrictive non-disclosure agreements on them, preventing them from speaking out about SDTC corporate misconduct. Ahmad testified that this practice continued while the ministry responsible for the fund, Innovation, Science and Economic Development Canada, was conducting an investigation into its HR practices. Since this scandal has come to light, which True North has reported on extensively, both SDTC CEO Leah Lawrence and board chair Annette Verschuren have resigned. Uh, look, this could have happened in any department. The fact that it's a green fund doesn't necessarily matter, but I think it is probably evidence, and I'm curious if you agree, Isaac, that government shouldn't be creating these bureaucracies that really operate without a lot of oversight and, and certainly without accountability. Yeah, I, I think the lack of accountability uh, is one of the main issues. And also, I think that Canadians uh, are unfortunately becoming accustomed to, I, I suppose, taxpayer dollars being completely wasted or, or, or worse yet, just disappearing into thin air. Like that uh, report I, I recently filed about the $323 million that taxpayers paid for a, a Quebec vaccine facility that was never built and, and never produced a vaccine. I, I was curious, Andrew, do you think that there's some system that needs to be in place to hold how taxpayers' money is, is, is spent more accountable? Look, it's it's tough to answer that in the time we have in, in this show, but I, I think that one of the most important things is not letting government get so large that it's impossible to manage. And this is, I think, the big problem with government is that when you have all these different arms and offices and, and the bureaucracy balloons to such a great extent, it becomes very difficult for an elected government with a few dozen cabinet ministers to have real accountability. And the bureaucracy is invested in its own survival and in its own longevity. So I think it's more of a philosophical framework rather than a, a strict system I'd bring in, which is that all of these crown corporations, these funds, these, these offshoots that have an undemocratic and unaccountable mandate really need to be reassessed to are they producing value for taxpayers that's it for today folks don't forget to check in at www.tnc.news throughout the day for all the news you need to know plus i'll be back with the andrew lawton show live at 1 p.m eastern 11 a.m mountain time and ratioed with harrison faulkner will be with you at 6 30 p.m eastern 4 30 p.m mountain Thanks for tuning in. Don't forget to share our work with your friends and neighbors. And if you're able, please consider supporting independent media at donate.tnc.news.